This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Uh, welcome to this very special Times, Sunday Times Red Box uh, fringe event here at the Conservative Party Conference. Uh, I'm delighted to be joined by Ruth Davidson, the leader of the Scottish Conservative Party. The, the easiest round of applause ever. Uh, <laughs> delighted to have you, so many of you uh, here. We are recording today's event for a podcast, which will be available uh, hopefully by the end of the day. You can download that from iTunes and all the other uh, usual places. And uh, we couldn't really have written it much bigger, but if you aren't already signed up to my morning email briefing, Red Box, then do sign up at thetimes.co.uk forward slash Red Box, and you'll get a free roundup of all the politics in the Times and uh, elsewhere in Westminster in your inbox every morning. Uh, that's the plug uh, over with. So, uh, can I just say before we start, like, can I just say I love Matt's optimism that you're giving up an hour to come and sit here in person and he wants you to then also download the post podcast later. <laughs> uh, in terms of division of labour, I'm not sure that that it's, one's going to be a winner. It's because what you're going to say is going to be so explosive right. that people want to listen no, back no, to I'm it. under strict instructions to commit no news while I'm here, but I'm not very good at that. You've never so. done that before. Yeah, so. I know. I'm, I'm going to try my very so best. Banking on you, yeah, uh, exactly. banking on you doing that. So, uh, Ruth uh, Elizabeth Davidson, born in Edinburgh, daughter of a mill manager and professional footballer. Mm -hmm. uh, a graduate in English literature, you became a training reporter at the Glen Rothes Gazette. Incorporating the Leslie and Markins News, it was a very influential paper, yes. Kingdom FM, Real Radio, then BBC Scotland. Mm -hmm. You then were also a signaller in the TA, a Sunday school teacher, mm -hmm. and of course, uh, legally all profiles that you have to mention that you're a lesbian kickboxer. And I haven't kickboxed in years, but I am still a lesbian, yes. Well, uh, well I'm, glad, I'm, glad, I'm glad at least that, that is, uh, is still accurate. Now, in 2011, in 2011, you became, I think against expectations, you became the leader of the Conservatives in Scotland. You weren't necessarily the... Uh, Obviously, you were quite young and inexperienced compared to some of the other people running. Back then, the, the Tories had 15 MSPs and one MP. You've now got 31 MSPs and 13 MPs. Um, this, this feels like a really tough crowd for you. <laughs> 
Yeah, well, I started out doing a by-election in Glasgow Northeast, which had been represented by the Labour Party for 75 years. And six months before the by-election, there had been a European election. And when you do the kind of box counts from that, the, we had come sixth, even behind the BNP in Scotland. Um, so yes, I've had tougher crowds than this one, yes. <laughs> uh, I think it's fair to say those hustings events were pretty formative. And you got 5% of the vote? Uh, and came third, which was a triumph for the party, I have to say, yes. So. so my point was that, that huge increase in both MSPs and, MS and MPs. Is and councillors. We, we do it differently in Scotland. Uh, so we do all of our council wards all at the same time instead of a third, a third and a third. So one of our really big elections in the last cycle has been uh, in local government. And, and the MPs get all the kind of glory because it hasn't happened for a while. But we more than doubled our number of councillors. And in places like the Highlands where they had never been uh, a Scottish Conservative elected in history, we got 10 uh, in Highland Council. We went from one to eight in places like Glasgow. Uh, we got in, in communities that hadn't been represented by us uh, in years or sometimes ever. And that's going to make the big difference because that's the platform that allows us to build from here because you need to have good local representation. You need to have people in and working in the ground in communities. And that's how you build. So in terms of the headline, it's great that the MPs get that. But in terms of the graft of the party and the payoff for that graft, the really big election for us this year was local government because that's what allows us to grow in Scotland. And is it all down to you? None of it is down to me. It's down to the team. I mean, we have built a really, really strong team in Scotland, and I'm so proud of, of so many of them. And uh, I think as well, you, you know, I, I came along, uh, I was, as you say, I was a journalist, so I wasn't a member of the party because I, I took my journalism very seriously. And, and while I always voted Conservative, I didn't want to be an active, you know, that wasn't my role. My role was to um, question active politicians, not to be one. Um, so I only really came along. I, I joined the Conservative Party on the 31st of October uh, 2008, which was the same day that I put in for voluntary redundancy from the BBC. Uh, so, you know, there are people in the party in Scotland who have been absolutely knocking their pan in in the darkest of days. Uh, and I've come along as quite a Johnny-come-lately, if you like. Um, so I cannot thank those people enough who kept the flame flying, kept the flame bright, uh, and have allowed us to, to build on that and, and get to where we are today. Uh, and this isn't it for us. You know, we've got, we've got more mountains we want to climb. What, what happened then in June this year for you to go from one MP to 13 in Scotland, but for the Conservative Party overall to lose its majority? What, what have you got that Theresa May hasn't? Well, I think we had um, Nicola Surgeon, and if she was on the television in England more often, uh, you might get more MPs in England as well. Um, <laughs> but uh, apart from that, um, you, you know, I mean, we had a specific set of circumstances in Scotland. We've had a Scottish government that's been in for 10 years. Uh, we also had a very, very big intervention by the SNP government in March, uh, where they had they'd spent basically all of the last sort of 10 months since the Brexit vote. Uh, trying to make Brexit the basis for another independence referendum. And in March, they did a big intervention calling for it to happen, and they looked like their momentum with that. And the country wasn't behind them. You know, the majority of people don't want another referendum in Scotland. They, they want uh, a bit of peace. Uh, they want us to concentrate uh, on what's important, like schools and public services and the economy. Um, and they really didn't like that. And, and the ability to say, look, no, let's put the brakes on this, uh, was, was one of the things that I had in my army. I also was able to write my own manifesto that didn't involve things like taking winter fuel allowance off of old people or asking, you know, asking to reform uh, social care without um, being able to explain to people why it is. And, and those reforms uh, are actually broadly positive uh, in the, the rest of the UK, but it's a reform that to explain takes a paragraph, but 
it doesn't even take a sentence to, to knock it down. You just say dementia tax and everyone runs away, you know, and, and you can't pitch roll a really major policy shift three weeks into an election campaign. It doesn't work. So, you know, a lot of the, the issues that came up for the party down south, um, you know, we had either sidestepped or, or, or weren't in, in the, the basis of, of having to confront. Do you find you spend a lot of your time in Scotland pretending that you've got nothing to do with the terrible Tories down in Westminster? No, not at all. I mean, I um, think actually that one of the things that allowed us uh, to, to go forward in, uh, in June was the very, very strong response that Theresa May had when Nicola Sturgeon pushed for this other referendum. She said, you know, now is not the time. She was absolutely firm in that. And if there had been any level of equivocation in the same way that the Labour Party wobbled at the time, um, then we wouldn't have had the result that we had. So uh, in terms of, you know, I, I think I was quoted in the Times the other day of saying, you know, the, uh, Theresa May and, and the Conservative Party m might have lost their majority, but by God, they saved the union. <laughs> they did. Uh, and to take 40% of SNPC want a majority as well. Of course, I can of course I wanted to have a majority as well. It wasn't an either or choice. No, it wasn't an either or choice, but in terms of um, you're asking what was different in Scotland and, and you're asking whether um, you know, the, the party nationally was a hindrance or a help, well, in, in terms of the biggest issue that was affecting the electorate in Scotland, I, I, you know, overwhelmingly a help. How many more seats do you think you could have got in Scotland if the national campaign had been better? Well, woulda, coulda, shoulda. I mean, I, I think you forget that Scotland has 22 national daily papers. It has its own opt-out of, of television news. Um, you know, we have such a, a... Yes, of course, there is UK-wide transmissions, uh, but so much of our, our media landscape now is Scotland-centric. It's Holyrood-centric. You ask sort of the man in the street in Buchanan Street in Glasgow, um, you know, who the Justice Secretary is north and south of the border. They'll be able to name you the Scottish one, but not the one down here. Uh, so there's, you know, there's, there, it's not a bubble, but, but um, you, you don't have the same impact uh, as before devolution, and rightly so. So, um, you know, it's not about what we could have won. I mean, I think it's about what am I looking to win next time? And as well as the 13 seats that we won, there was another five where we were within 1,500 votes. Now, some of, and there's, you know, another 10 after that where so we were within 5,000 votes, you know, so. You could have won those if the, if no, you no, hadn't no, had no, the bots and the terrible manifesto. No, no, not what I'm saying. And, and there's a lot of tactical voting in Scotland as well, where sometimes we were the beneficiary of that, sometimes we, we were not the beneficiary of that. But um, you look at some of the results that we had, I, I think my, um, you know, apart from the, the ones that people talk about, sort of Angus Robertson, the, the SNP's group leader in, in Westminster, uh, their former leader, Alex Salmond, you look just down the coast from that seat in, in Banff and Buchan, uh, David Dugood, um, who just won that seat, uh, from Ailey Whiteford, he overturned a 14,000 majority. 14,000 majority. I mean, this is enormous. So if you're looking at where's our launch pad for that, then you're, I'm not just talking about the next five seats where we're within 1,500. I'm looking at where we can go from then on. What was your relationship like with the national campaign during the campaign? And with, we've heard a lot about Nick Timothy and Fiona Hill and their mm. role in the campaign. Uh, and the general way that they behaved. The stories that we've heard about them, do they sound familiar to you? Well, I, I mean, I, I think uh, in terms of Fiona Hill, we had a, a pretty good ally there because as somebody that's a, a former journalist for the Scotsman newspaper, who's from Scotland, whose parents still live in Greenock, she, when we came saying, look, you know, here's what you need to understand X, Y, Z. There was somebody that immediately understood it and was able to convey it. So actually that was really quite helpful um, to have another kind of Scot in the room when you're trying to explain sort of, uh, you know, I, I don't like to talk about the Scottish exceptionalism, but sometimes there are differences uh, in terms of nuance that you want to put forward. Um, 
but also, I, I mean, the great unsung hero of, of our electoral success in the last sort of three, four years is a chap called Mark McInnes, who is our party director in Scotland, who, uh, along with the Labour Party former MP Frank Roy, was called in in the last six months of the Better Get Together campaign during the referendum campaign to sort out the ground war, who is, I think, one of the best people in Britain at what he does. I'm desperately trying to fend off attempts from London to poach him for central office, uh, who, is, uh, who is a genuine genius at identifying voters, turning them out and making sure that the messaging is there. Uh, and he is in charge of our ground war. Um, and without him, we would not have had the success that we've had. He um, is he's one of the, the crony lords, as in he was, uh, David Cameron promoted him to the lords uh, um, after the immense effort that he put into the Better Together campaign. And I can't think of anybody who is more deserving of it. Uh, I'm one of these people, and we have them in so many levels of the party, who devote their life to the Conservative Party and they don't want any thanks in return and very few of them get thanks and it's great that he has been able to be recognised and I think that he would take that recognition on behalf of so many other people who don't. He's, he's an absolute genius at what he does. Well, as you've raised, and I'm riding on his coattails, as totally standing on the shoulders of giants. So. As you've raised <laughs> the idea of somebody who's very successful yeah. electorally in Scotland and attempts to get them to come down to London. Uh, <laughs> That was slick. I mean, that was that was pretty good, Matt. Like fair play, that was a good one. Have, uh, do you regret not standing to become an MP in June? No. Did you ever consider it? No, because we had such an opportunity to put on votes and seats. But to do that, you need to have a leader who is in the places in the country where they can make a difference, who is available, ring ready. Um, on their game for all of the TV debates, of which we have many in Scotland, uh, all of the kind of the, the leaders' uh, hustings that are non-televised, of which again there's many in Scotland, uh, and it allowed me to to do things that I wouldn't have been able to do if I was fighting a constituency as well. And I, I probably, you know, we wouldn't have been as successful as a party, and, and I wouldn't have been successful as a candidate because I would be trying to do both jobs, and you can't. Um, if I can give you an example. Um, our local government election was in May. The um, general election had just been announced a couple of weeks before. Um, so we got all the results coming through on the Friday. And uh, we were looking at them. And we were looking at Gordon, uh, which is Alex Salmon's constituency, where we thought we would get a good vote, but we weren't convinced that we could get over the top of it. And we're going through all of the returns and going, if you map that onto a, onto a, a Westminster constituency, we've just taken Gordon by 2,500 votes. And the Saturday, I was supposed to go to East Renfrewshire, which was a, another seat that was in play. I just went, nah, sod that. Let's go and park our tanks on Salmon's lawn, because he'll go mental. You know, <laughs> freak out. Let's get out there. And we went out. And we got like a, you know, we got like 80 or 90 activists. We went to the town square in Inverurie, which is a market town right in the middle of the constituency, right in his patch, did a big rally, basically said, Alex Salmond, we're coming for you. And we weren't sure whether we could take it, because he's just, you know, he's a big name in Scottish politics. We weren't sure if we could take it. But what we knew was he would absolutely stamp his feet and he would drag in all of the resources from our, um, surrounding seats where we knew that we were in the game for. So win-win, we either, you know, we lose it, but we were never going to win it anyway, but we take all of these other seats, or we say we're going to take it, and it gives people enough confidence to vote for us to take the seat off them, and, and that's what happened, you know. So, you know, there's, there's fun things you can do as a leader that don't mean that you're not part of the campaign. I mean, I, I just I just love, love a fight. You know, I'll pick a fight with anyone on any grounds, and you look at all of the elections that we've had. I've not been leader yet for six years. So I'm just coming up for six years, and I've done... I've led the party through eight national campaigns, which is six 
national elections and two referenda through four different, five different voting systems actually. And you know, any place, any time, anywhere, I'm the Cinzano Martini of politicians. You know, I'll, I'll absolutely fight a campaign anywhere, but to be able to lead a campaign, you have to focus on the leadership. You can't, you can't do half the leadership role and half a constituency role. It just doesn't work. So why is it that you give that answer again oh. and again and again, and yet there are so many people in this room, at this conference, who are looking to you to save the party? <laughs> well, I don't think that's true for a start. Well, I think um, it is, is that true? Yeah. Well, you know, I don't think the party needs saving. I think it needs to get over its current nervous breakdown and man up a little bit. And I think <laughs> that's... Oh, God, I've just committed news, haven't I? <laughs> I ought to have a I just, bell. I just, I just saw 16 journalists go, right, OK, darn. But, I mean, I think that's what I was trying to say in my conference speech yesterday, um, in that... I absolutely understand why, you know, we underperformed at election, we didn't do as well as we thought that we could do or that we thought that we should do or that the level of uh, resource, um, both in personnel and in effort and in, uh, you know, in monetary resource, would expect us to do. Uh, and it's absolutely right that we look at all of the reasons for why and that we try and sort them all out. Um, but there is a point at which you have to lift your eyes to the horizons as well. And I hope very much that we come out of this conference and, and that's where we're, we're, we're for. And, and I think the speech yesterday was trying to put a bit of lead in everybody's pencil by going, look, we've seen this in Scotland. I mean, if you Google Nicola Sturgeon Hydro, um, you will see um, the First Minister doing a political event. It wasn't Glastonbury. It's not like everyone was there for the rock show and a politician turned up. It was just a political rally to 10,000 people. And that was at the turn of 2014-15. Um, and we were being told, we've never seen anything like this in Scotland. We've never seen anything like this in the whole UK. You can't fight against this. Everyone's going to be blown away. And they had a great election in 2015. And it was a tsunami and all the rest of it. But it doesn't last forever. You know, and, and if you keep plugging away, if, you keep, if you're up for the fight, if you keep going, if you make and you remake and you remake your case, if you organise, if you get people in place, if you get candidates ready to fight, if you are disciplined, if you keep on to the messaging, if you focus on where you can go, you, know, you absolutely can start chipping away at that. And the SNP just lost 40% of their Westminster seats. They lost 21 seats across Scotland from the borders to the Highlands and back again. Uh, and we've got more of their seats in our sights. So what I'm saying is, just because people are chanting, oh, Jeremy Corbyn, like, let's not be faint-hearted about this. Um, we were on the right side of the argument on the economy. We know that we need to uh, ensure that we adapt to a, a changing world, that we are supporting our public services, that we're looking after the younger generation. But we don't just pack up and go home because they've got a bit of a spring in their step. Like, we get stuck in. Like, like I say, show me them. I'll start the fight. That's fine. <laughs> so why not, why not put yourself forward to take the fight to Jeremy Corbyn? Well, I, I'm doing that in Scotland. And, you know, I've had three elections in 18 months where in every single election, the Scottish Conservative Party has gone from third behind the Labour Party to second ahead of the Labour Party. You know, in last year's uh, Scottish Government election was the first time in more than 60 years in a national election that in Scotland, in Scotland, the Labour Party had been pushed into third place. You know, I'm doing my bit, lads, but we need everybody else to kind of get in there and do it too. So straightforward, because I know you're a straight-talking, honest politician who always gives a straight answer, straight question. <laughs> Which just means you're going to ask me a question I don't like. Will you ever run for the leadership of the Tory party? I honestly can't see it. Honestly can't. Um, I am really lucky, and I am regularly behind the door at number 10, but it honestly looks like the loneliest job in the world. It really does. 
Um, and I think it must be like that for the leadership of any G7 nation and or big country or, or whatever. Um, and I, yeah, I, you know, people ask me and they, they can't believe that I don't want the job. <laughs> I really don't. Um, I do want the job of being First Minister of Scotland and that's what I'm working towards in 2021. But what's, what would be more important to you, being the First Minister in Scotland or stopping Jeremy Corbyn becoming Prime Minister? The most important thing for me, absolutely, first, last and always, is keeping our country together. And it's funny, uh, I didn't, that's not what I came into politics for. Um, I think very few people, apart from maybe if you're a Liberal Democrat, uh, actually like the Constitution. I mean, you come into politics in order to do things for people. You don't come into politics to talk about the structures under which things are done. Um, that's not why you do it. Um, but it, it astonished me how much it mattered. Like, even I was surprised. And I think because we're very lucky in the United Kingdom, we don't have the kind of external threats that some other countries have, that we wear our um, patriotism, for want of a better word, or we wear our nationality or, or, or our belonging to the United Kingdom very lightly. Um, but it's amazing when, you are, when that's threatened in the way that it, it was in Scotland, how much you realise that, that some of your personal identity is linked with your national identity. Um, and, you know, that was, a, that was a long, hard, three-year gritty campaign that was fought in Scotland. And I think that um, making sure that the vote that happened and the endorsement of staying within the United Kingdom that was delivered by the people of Scotland is protected as, is something that is more important to me than party. And I had to work with other parties for that. Um, I sometimes had to talk to fellow Conservatives um, and clash with fellow Conservatives about the way in which we did this. And it, it became apparent to me that if it comes to a question of country versus party, then for me it's country every day of the week and twice on a Sunday. Which is not to say that I'm not a committed Conservative, that I want to see us do well. Um, I actually think that Jeremy Corbyn would be a threat to the Union. Uh, I think he's very equivocal uh, on whether he, wants the United, uh, whether he wants Scotland to stay. I think we've seen that his support for a border poll in Northern Ireland um, you know, means that, I mean, if Northern Ireland were to go, then I think that that would give impetus to Scotland. Um, the same way as when Scotland was having its referendum, there was an awful lot of nationalists in Northern Ireland who were very interested at what happened with us and were conveying the idea that if Scotland went, then Northern Ireland would be a lot closer to it as well. So, you know, I, I think that stopping Jeremy Corbyn is quite important, but I'm 38 and he's what, 68? I think I can outlast him. <laughs> I, I think I can. As, as you mentioned Northern Ireland, let's go back to the election mm. uh, in June. And yeah. you had this extraordinary election in Scotland that you'd done a lot better than people had expected. And then you, ha you saw your party having to go on bended knee to the DUP, a small party from Northern Ireland, who have got MPs who don't agree with same-sex marriage, who have stood up in the House of Commons and talked about it's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. How, do, how did you feel when you realised that after all of the effort that you'd done, you had to get in bed with a party like that? Well, I'm not sure that Arlene Foster would be comfortable with the idea of being in bed with me. Um, <laughs> oh. <laughs> and she is controlling the lights. <laughs> if Barry White comes on, I'm in real trouble. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think... Firstly, it was quite important for me that it wasn't a formalised coalition, and I think that it's good that it's an agreement and, and not that. Was, um, that. was that on the table? Did you make clear that you wouldn't 
Um, I, I, to be honest, I wasn't part of the negotiation, so I, I, I can't speak knowledgeably about that. But I, I did speak uh, very early on after the election to the Prime Minister when there was uh, talk about such a deal going through and um, said that you know I would be deeply uncomfortable with that. Um, and also said that um, in terms of the LGBT community, um, you know, we needed to ensure that as a party, uh, we demonstrated that we were, um, we would never roll back on the advancements that had been made in the rest of the United Kingdom, that we'd use any influence that we had to advance uh, um, further LBGT rights in Northern Ireland itself. Um, and, and is that happening? You, you, you wanted that assurance in June. Do you, yeah, do you feel you're, like... you're seeing some of the work that Justine Greening's doing on trans rights and others. So you're seeing that work that's going on. And, and, and actually what was quite important was I was down not long after the election for the first political cabinet after the election. Uh, and um, there was a broad agreement around the, the cabinet table um, that we needed to get on and, and some of the things that were in train in terms of this area, we needed to crack on and do as an early indication that that was exactly what was going to happen. So people that were genuinely concerned about it could have that reassurance. And I think, you know, I think in terms of, you know, I have to be very careful because I operate in a devolved legislature in Scotland and, you know, as much as I wouldn't like anybody from Northern Ireland coming over and telling me how to do my job in, in Holyrood, um, I don't want to go over to Northern Ireland and tell people how to do their job in Stormont, but I, I was over, I was invited over in uh, last year to go and do the annual Amnesty Pride lecture in Belfast, um, and which I, which I did. Um, and I think part of the issue in Northern Ireland on, on equal marriage, and I think it's, you know, I think it's, it's pretty wrong that there is a part of the United Kingdom which still does not e sort of recognise equal marriage. Um, I was invited over because I think they thought they'd won the lottery because they managed to find a Scottish or a unionist Protestant Presbyterian who was about to get married to an Irish Catholic educated by nuns uh, to be able to talk about how this is a cross-community issue. So I'm not sure who was next on the list if I had said no and turned it down. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but they invited me across and, and uh, I, I went. And I think for those of you who aren't au fait with uh, Northern Irish politics, uh, in Stormont, um, unlike other legislatures, um, there is something called a petition of concern, which means that even if there's a majority in Parliament for something and you can pass a piece of legislation, um, if one of the different communities in Northern Ireland can say that that infringes upon their community rights, they're allowed to launch a petition of concern and it doesn't necessarily happen. So there's been five votes for equal marriage in Northern Ireland. Four of them have been defeated. The fifth actually passed. So as well as having majority support within the country of Northern Ireland for equal marriage, there is also now majority support within Stormont for Northern Ireland for, for equal marriage. But because the DUP has invoked a petition of concern, it means that it can't pass. So you've got a parliamentary majority, you've got a public majority, but it still doesn't happen. Um, and, I, and I think that um, you know, the, the times will change and, and that will have to change. And that was the point uh, that I was making. Do you think that Theresa May should tell them that as part of the deal and she's given them a lot of money that, that part of the deal is that they do back down? Well, I mean, I think that it should happen, but I think that you get into very difficult waters if you devolve something to a devolved legislature and then suddenly have the reserved uh, part of the United Kingdom telling, something, telling a group of people who are, are devolved what to do. And again, you know, I don't think I would react very well sitting in a devolved legislature as I do if somebody from the House of Commons 
told me what to do about Scottish health or Scottish education, um, because actually that's what we legislate on. Thanks very much. But Theresa May is the Prime Minister, and she mm. is in a electoral pact with the... Well, uh, what I, uh, and, uh, and what I asked the Prime Minister for was that an assurance that we as a party and her as Prime Minister mm. would do everything that we could to exert what influence we had to make sure there was movement in Northern Ireland on this issue, and that was an assurance that I received. Are you confident that there's total agreement in the Cabinet on the trans agenda? Um, well, I think that, um, no, I'm not entirely sure that there's total agreement, um, but I, I think that there is uh, a recognition of, of where we're going, and I think that that's the right thing to do. And what's the... What's the, what's the problem in, in and around the cabinet table? Um, well, to be honest, I haven't, spoken to, well, who, I haven't, who I haven't spoken to people about this in any great depth. I know that it's a, an area of policy uh, that Justine Greening's taken on. I think she's doing a very good job with it. And um, you know, I, I think that this is the, the next area where we, we have to get it right. And what and I think, and, but there's, I mean, don't, don't get me wrong here. I don't, I don't want to have committed fake news. Uh, you know, there is a, a genuine a, a agreement on, on where we're going on this. Why is, it, why is it so important? Why, why should the, you know, the Prime Minister's got quite a lot of interest at the moment. Why do you think she should be expending political capital on it? Well, I think that when it comes to um, people, you should do the right thing when it comes to their lives. And I don't think that just because Brexit's happening, you should stop doing everything else that needs doing. Now, I get that, you know, you've got lots of officials that are attached to a, a lot of the work that's going on, and it's right that we work through that. I seem to have committed news early in the week for talking about making sure we're very diligent uh, in terms of how <laughs> we work through Brexit. Um, but I, I do think that if, if Brexit weren't happening, um, there would be a, a lot of intellectual thought and heft within the centre-right, maybe not on, on the trans issue particularly, but looking at other issues that's currently being absorbed in that. And I, I do think that we um, have to make sure that we don't drop the ball in other areas. And what, what sort of areas, I mean, you've talked in the past mm -hmm. about things like executive pay and tax and, and low-skilled, particularly low-skilled young men and how they progress in life. Is it, do you, th do you worry that all that agenda isn't being looked Yeah, I mean, at? I, I genuinely believe that if Trumpism wasn't happening in the States and if Brexit wasn't happening in the UK, there would be a, an almost herd-like instinct around the sort of intellectual centre-right to start looking at the nature of capitalism, looking at how capitalism has changed, looking at the way the world economy changes, looking at what the next frontier is, and we're about to have... Um, you know, the next industrial revolution, which is going to be a technological revolution. You've already heard people talking about automation as part of that. And, and what does that mean for people? And it's great to use all of these big words and looking at all of these concepts, but what does that mean for a young man that leaves school at 17 years old with a, you know, a, a clutch of GCSEs down here um, or, you know, equivalent uh, exams up there, who would have in the past have gone to work in his local factory or gone to work down his, you know, in his local pit or gone into the army or, or all of these areas that are now no longer there for him. What does that mean for him? And, and how does he think that in the past where if he was working in a factory for the first couple of years, he would have then become, gone to the night shift because you got a bit extra pay for that. He would then come back to the day shift as like a junior foreman. By the time his classmates finished school, went to college or university, got a degree, started in their sort of graduate recruitment job, he would already have been earning for a significant number of years, he would have saved up, he would have started on the housing ladder, either through a local authority or housing association, but he would have moved out of home, he would have been settled with his, his girlfriend, say, and settled down and, and, and have the status and the respect and self-respect that all of that entails. What is the route for that young man now? And I think that if we weren't 
overwhelmed with things like Brexit, that's where the serious intellectual thought on, on you know, in the centre right would be. And you know, I, I think it's a crime if that thought isn't happening because these are questions that are still going to be there after March 2019, and we're still going to have to solve them. Does it depress you then, given given that huge challenge that you've laid mm. out, that the headline offer to young people from the Tories this week has been a pound a week off their or pound a day off their tuition fee loan? Well, look, I mean, I think uh, you know we're only on day two of a conference where there's policy announcements every single day, and that was day one's policy announcement. I actually don't think that the the kind of freezing of the um, of the repayment. Uh, is the headline there. I actually think it's not having to start paying back to your earning £25,000. In Scotland, you start paying back your student fees, your, sorry, your student loans, because uh, we, don't, we don't have a fee structure, but you start paying back your student loans at less than £18,000. Now, my first job, I got paid £9,600 a year. I have been in that low pay bracket uh, as I was moving through um, my place of work. I had, because of my family situation, I was on a full grant in my first year, and then Tony Blair got elected and grants were scrapped. So, you know, um, I didn't have that. I had to take out loans. I had to. I had three jobs when I worked through university. Um, I know what it's like to have to start paying it back. And when you're on low wage, less than uh, average wage, every pound matters. And, and the difference between having to start paying back at less than eighteen thousand pounds a year or more than twenty-five thousand pounds a year, um, you know, is a massive, massive difference. And I, and I think actually that will make a material difference to people's lives. Let, let, as we were talking about Brexit, let's, let's, let's talk about um, that just a minute. We will take some questions in a, in a second. Are you a Ramona? Um, no, and I, I really wish we could kind of get away from that sort of Sorry. rhetoric. I don't, <laughs> well, I just, um, I just don't think it's helpful. Um, I think there is a general acceptance by all but the very few that this is happening, it's going to happen, and we need to try and make it happen in the best possible way. Um, and I, I don't think that it's heresy to say let's make sure we get this right and that it's not okay to tell the country, oh, everything's just going to be f fine if we wish it so, without actually doing the hard work that's required to put um, the framework in place to ensure that we have a smooth transition. So um, so if people want to call me that, that that's fine, that's entirely up to them, but it, there is a pragmatism that's involved in doing something that has never been done before uh, and how complicated it is. It's really, really complicated. For you, are there any positives to Brexit, or is it just a case of making the best of a bad job? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, if you look at the Scotland's uh, fishing industry, they, you know, they can't get out fast enough, and you know, we need to make sure that when we do leave, that they have um, the benefits that they see. And, and I think, uh, for me, uh, you know, my response to um, the vote last June, you know, I, I had quite a, you know, I had a, a response that was also rational, but also it had quite a lot of emotion in it, which I didn't really expect. Um, and because I've, I've never, you know, I've never gone to sleep under an EU duvet. I've not been, you know, I've never spent my life being like a, a massive pro-European. But you know, my, my on-balance decision was that we should stay in. Um, what I was really surprised by was like from the next day and right through the the summer recess last year and, and, and right the way through since then is the number of knocks on my door from Scottish businesses who are utterly rational and pragmatic about it and we're coming in and just laying out completely boldly, right, this is happening. This is what I'm worried about. This is where I see the opportunities are because we've never really liked what X, what Europe was doing about X or Y, um, and this is what really can't happen or I'm stuffed. So the pragmatism that business and different sectors have shown really made me sort of up my game on, on, on working through the, the details and, and what can be delivered. So, so yes, absolutely, in terms of are there benefits, yes, and there are a number of uh, 
areas in Scotland uh, and businesses, sectors who are actively pursuing those benefits? Are there areas where there are dangers? Yes, absolutely too. And I think we've got to be we've got to be realistic and if we're going to deliver for the country on this, if we're going to deliver for people's jobs in different sectors, then we've got to take each of these concerns as well as each of these asks as seriously as each other. How big a risk is there that a lot of people vote for Brexit for different reasons, but mm. that a lot of those reasons aren't going to be addressed by a sort of administrative outcome of a transition period and then some sort of trade deal afterwards. If it was about identity or about how their town had changed or automation or immigration, yeah. did they end up feeling let, let down all over again because of promises that were made, whether they were written on the side of a bus or they were made by high-profile figures in the Vote Leave campaign? Not biting. However... Um... We'll get there in a second. <laughs> Um, I, I mean, I think, uh, I think what's interesting is that you're still asking these questions as a hypothetical, uh, and more than a year on for the vote, people are still asking about why people voted the way they are. We have no real answer. We don't, we don't know. We've not done that regression analysis particularly well. We, you know, there's still a, people posit their theory of why the majority of people voted for Brexit. So we just don't know. But I think that, again, in the hypothetical, if these were the reasons, if it was because um, they feel like the system doesn't work for them, or if they feel that the nature of their town has changed, for example, then the idea that they're going to wake up in the morning of, of, of March 2019 uh, and they're going to have everything that they want and everything's going to revert back to the sunny uplands of 1955, and I'm, I don't think that's, I don't think that's true. Um, so um, do I think that a lot of people voted for very good reasons, for pragmatic reasons, for reasons over sovereignty and uh, the ability to uh, change the way in which the area and, and, and sector in which they worked was able to operate. Yeah, of course they did. Um, did some people vote for something that was slightly less tangible than that? Yeah, I'm sure they did too. But um, the duty now from all of us is to get the very best deal coming out the back end. I'm going to try another hypothetical. Imagine, if you can, that mm -hmm. uh, in Hollywood, Yes. One of your front benches yeah. uh, wrote not just one article in a newspaper uh -huh. putting themselves at odds with you, uh. spent a week suggesting that they might resign and then not resign and say they were happy, and then a week later give another interview saying that they uh -huh. weren't happy. Would you sack them? <laughs> I think you're going to have to be more specific. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, do you think collective responsibility should stretch the Foreign Secretary? <laughs> and do you think that Theresa May should sack him? Well, as uh, the Foreign Secretary has put out himself, uh, the piece that he wrote for The Sun just a couple of days ago was actually in line with the current government policy and therefore conforms to Cabinet responsibility. So why do it? What, pardon, why, why, why did he do it, then, if, if he's just restating government policy? If I was able to interpret the actions uh, and thought process behind the actions of the Foreign Secretary, um, then I think I could make a better living doing that than I do now. Do you think he knows what he's doing? <laughs> I think this is a train of uh, argument and questioning that I'm not qualified to answer. Well, it was worth a go. Okay, let's open it up. But I would say, if anyone uh, in 
and just in case, because I've got a lot of my MSPs at this conference, if any of you think of writing anything without telling me <laughs> that is counter to current Scottish Conservative policy, you're out in your ear because nobody is unsackable. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, we could all leave now, but uh, let's open it up for questions. Wait for the microphone to come to you. Robert Atkins. Mm. Ruth, you've often described yourself as a majorite. Yeah. Can you explain? Yeah, I honestly think that John Major's uh, contribution uh, in government and to this country um, is underappreciated. Uh, I think in terms of decency, of duty, of commitment, of service, uh, he was a tremendous Prime Minister. Uh, I think uh, that he has been one of the best ever ex-Prime Ministers, and that is a skill. Uh, in terms of dignity and, and making uh, interventions when required, uh, but not being a backseat driver. Um, I also uh, remember uh, during the um, referendum campaign, I asked him to come up to Scotland to do an event, uh, a sort of fundraiser and, and, um, and kind of uh, sort of profile raiser. Uh, and he, he basically he'd, he'd never really done a public event in Scotland since we lost every single seat in 1997 and his son lived in Scotland for a while and he was up and down a lot in a private capacity but had uh, always um, shied away from doing anything publicly and I think he still had a sort of lingering kind of regrets about that campaign and it would have been so easy for him really easy for him because in a room of 450 people that were hanging on his every word to stand up there and do one of the greatest hits tours, talk about all of the world leaders he met, you know, talk about keeping us out of the Euro. And uh, it, was it was in 2012, so it was just after we won all of those medals at the Olympics. Talk about how the National Lottery had helped for reform sport in this country. Talk about the Good Friday Agreement. And, you know, it had been really easy for him to have just sort of basked in his own glory. And he stood up and he gave the most really interesting, thoughtful, challenging speech uh, about, and it was posited at the time that we should allow UKIP to kind of join us and put, not stand against each other and all that stuff, about why um, we were a, a truly national party, that uh, immigration was a conservative, the idea of, of picking up um, your family and moving halfway across the world for a better life was the most conservative thing he could think of. And, and when he was growing up in Brixton, you know, the, the effort that these families put in and the, the difficulties that they overcame uh, was phenomenal. He talked about his own past. He was really challenging and he tackled all of the really big issues of the time. And he didn't need to. You know, he was basically there to be wheeled out, clapped at, uh, raise some funds and go home. And he knew that, but he didn't want that to be it. You know, he didn't want that to be it. And he was so thoughtful. Margaret Thatcher resigned, I think I was still at primary school. So he was my prime minister when I was growing up. So I, you know, when I first became politically aware. And um, he's just such a sensible, moderating figure. And like I say, in terms of being an ex-prime minister, he is so classy in it and so dignified in it. And actually, I think as a party, we have never really thanked him enough for what must have been a hard shift in office. Um, <laughs> and a real dignity afterwards. And um, just as an aside, just because I think this is funny, and, it, it, you know, um, and it'll probably ruin his reputation, um, he very kindly took me and David Mundell uh, out for dinner uh, after he did this event with uh, one of his assistants. Uh, and 
what I didn't realise was that he is a massive Rolling Stones fan that's seen them in about 15 different countries around the world. Um, that he had to take a picture of a semi-naked um, Mick Jagger sprawled all over Norma off the fridge once the grandchildren got old enough to ask who that was. With <laughs> Granny. Uh, that he's an enormous fan of Pharrell Williams' Happy, which he was singing all the time because his grandkids uh, like Despicable Me. Uh, and that he can recite almost all of Winnie the Pooh. So he is a truly Renaissance man. That's all I'm going to say. So, and he also, of course, took over from a female Conservative Prime Minister and led the party to a surprise election victory. Imagine well, that. 19, no, in 1992, <laughs> uh, in 1992, that was a tremendous result yeah, yeah, for yeah, us yeah. in Scotland because it was it was uh, said that we would lose, you know, a number of our seats, and we actually put one on, which was uh, a really, really I, good I result. Go to Mark. Sorry, I was going to go to Mike yeah. uh, there. Hi, Mike. Hello, hello. Uh, Michael Settle from Her Majesty's Herald. Uh, I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to return to the subject of the blonde bombshell. Um, Marilyn Monroe. Great actress. Fantastic actress. If, if, if you think Boris Johnson is like Marilyn Monroe, that's a good story. Um, he, he could have sung Happy Birthday to the Prime Minister yesterday. Oh, at the Scottish reception, we did. Yeah. Do you think Boris Johnson is undermining the Prime Minister? I think the Foreign Secretary is talking about areas that are absolutely within the purview of his office. Not the public sector pay cap. I thought we were talking about the Brexit stuff. But in the, in the Sun interview, he, he drifted into some domestic areas as well. Did I didn't see that. Oh, okay. The Chancellor is defending the market economy today. Uh, what's the right balance between the market and the state for you? Well, I, I mean, I, I think that, you know, we have to make that argument because if we don't, then somebody else will. Uh, it will be somebody that doesn't understand that... Um, uh, capitalism in its widest form has led the world to uh, half extreme poverty, to uh, increase uh, life expectancy, health expectancy, to raise uh, wealth around the world. You know, it, it has been an amazing tool uh, around the world. I think what's difficult now is that it's losing the faith of people particularly uh, in advanced Western democracies. Uh, and I think that we have to make and remake that case. But we also have to make and remake a case for fairness. Now, if you're talking about the United Kingdom, um, inequality, as it's measured uh, either through the Gini coefficient or other coefficients that you use to measure it, show that inequality in this country is at its lowest level for more than 30 years. But if you're living in you know, a shared you know, house, small flat in zone six in London and spending half of your money trying to get in and out of the city centre to a job that's not had a, a rise, a pay rise in the last five years. And you see, you know, a Russian oligarch or a premiership football going past in a gold-plated Bentley. The world doesn't feel that bloody fair. It doesn't feel that bloody equal to you. You know, and I think that when you're looking at, on a wider scope, you're looking at the sort of pay differentials now within big companies. <coughs> And say 30 years ago, they might have been between the CEO and the average earner, it might have been 40 times what somebody on the shop floor would earn would, would be what the boss earned. And now you're looking at more than 400 times. Then that's something that feels like if it's not broken, then it's very badly damaged. And I think that in terms of where government should tread uh, is that there has always been a role for government in creating a framework under which private organisations operate. And I think that governments have to be sure that when they're looking at the framework as it is set, to give people a living playing field, to make sure we make things absolutely <coughs> cheaper for consumers, but we're also making sure that workers don't get exploited, and all of these other things, that we have to ensure that we 
help people understand and help deliver a bit more fairness in the market economy. Just on that issue of CEO pay to mm. work pay, the Labour Party has talked about actually having imposing a ratio that, that, mm. that companies would have to abide by. Unless you... Just identifying the problem isn't enough. You have yeah. to have a solution. Do you think that that is something that the Conservatives should consider? Well, actually, interestingly, it's not necessarily originally been a left argument. Um, and I remember actually here two years ago, um, the Legatum Institute had a, 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 an event out at Old Trafford. Uh, and Michael Gove was talking a, a, about this and some of the work that he'd done on it and the looking at the, he called it the undeserving rich as well as the undeserving poor. Um, and ratios was something that was discussed then and has been discussed down the years. I, I think that there is a natural reluctance um, within the centre-right to be as prescriptive as that because not all companies fit the same models. So to say that, that every company in the world, that, that's how it works, uh, probably is going to throw up a, a whole raft of unintended consequences, um, particularly given how mobile companies are. Uh, unless everyone in the world does it, then it, you know, it, it leads to quite a, a difficulty. However, that said, I think that there are, there are efforts short of that which can create a huge difference and, and bring CEO pay great, um, more into line. What, what's that like through the tax system? Was well, I, I think well, you, can, you can either do it um, within the tax system, you can do it uh, because a, a lot of, of where we're talking about here, and we're talking about some of the really big international firms, you can do it uh, through some of the ways in which people move between countries, you can do it um, instead of regressively, you can do it in terms of the way in which companies are supported because there's a lot of government support for companies, particularly when they move and start to operate within a country. So you can do it either at the front end or you can do it at the back end on tax. Okay, let's take another question. Uh, lady down here at the front. Hi. Hello. Um, I wanted to ask about the youth vote. Obviously, there's a big issue at the moment is how, as a party, we can engage better with young people. Mm. And obviously, we have the kind of cult of Corbyn, which is it's getting people involved, which is great, but how do we actually kind of utilise that and embrace that as a party? I think um, yeah, I think one of the things that we do is we, we speak to uh, young people of, of voting age, so in, in England and Wales between 18 and, and 25, and in Scotland between 16 and 25, not as if they are a separate species, <laughs> you know. And I think that people who are um, in further and higher education, people who are starting their first job, um, you know, have the same interests and goals as, as many others. I think. Um, one, we have to get an awful lot better about how we convey our messaging to them. So I think actually the, the messenger and the way in which we convey it, our social media policy is not good enough in Scotland. You know, our, our provision um, in terms of how we uh, broadcast what it is that we're trying to say isn't good enough. Uh, and speaking just within traditional media is not going to help with that. Um, I think as well that we have to remember that it's not always about policies that directly affect someone in an age group that somebody in that age group is concerned about. You know, people didn't want granny to lose her home for social care as much as old people in the election there. It wasn't, it wasn't you know, it's not a selfish generation, that generation. Uh, and things like environmental policies, things like social policies uh, are as important as student fees. You know, it's not a simple retail offer. It's also about how we carry ourselves as a party. It's the way in which we uh, talk to the country. It's about having the right motives, and I think that our motives as a party is questioned much more than other parties, never mind the outcomes. Uh, it's, about, it's about the whole package that we have, and I don't think that you can tinker with 
um, you know, one nut or bowl and think that the whole machine is going to work. Uh, I, I, think, I think young people would see through us. What about votes at 16 for all elections? Yeah, I, you know, I wasn't fully signed up to the old uh, votes at 16 question uh, until I saw it in the ground and operating in Scotland, and it, I'm an absolute convert to it. Some of the best questioning, some of the best uh, analysis that I've had have been on schools and college visits. And, um, you know, in terms of the engagement process, particularly because everybody you know has access all young people have access pretty much to the to the internet because they're looking up you know whether it's guardian online or mail online or uh, the times like the times, or the the times, times. online whether they're redbox subscribers yeah, exactly. uh, you know, and the podcast. you know i mean you go into a school and you give a talk or you're having a debate with a political opponent and you come out with a factor figure people are actually googling it to make sure that you've not <laughs> arsed up the numbers you know it's 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 that forensic and and um and yeah, I'm absolutely, I've completely changed my view on it. I support it. And do you think Theresa May should offer that is it in a future Conservative manifesto nationally? Um, yes, I do. Yeah. Excellent. Let's take another question. Because it's the first it. journalist that's not asked me whether Theresa May will be writing another manifesto and, and leading us into another election. I, I suspect you'd tell me <laughs> it's a hypothetical. Hi. Um, obviously, in the UK, we were very lucky to put the independence question to bed with the ballot box. With that in mind, do you have any comments on what happened in Spain yesterday? Yeah, I mean, I, I think some of the pictures that have come out from, from Spain and some of the reports uh, have been shocking, truly shocking. Um, and I think that, um, it, you know, it's, it's, it's really, we shouldn't be drawing parallels between Scotland and Spain, but, I, but the, the one thing that I would say is that um, the answer to the Catalan question is not going to be solved by riot police in the streets. The answer to the Catalan question is going to be serious people in Catalonia and Madrid getting around a table and talking to each other. Uh, and that's what's going to bring a resolution to this. It's not going to be some of the scenes uh, and the violence we saw at the weekend. Nobody wants to see people getting hurt. Nobody wants to see um, actors of the state actively attacking people. Um, and, and I think as the UK is a, a friend of Spain, it has to be able to say that. Hi, hello, Torkel Clyde and Daily Record. Ruth, uh, I heard what you said in your earlier answer about the divisions in society and, and your compassion for that, but why don't you walk the walk and, and get your 12 Scottish Conservative MPs to join the other 12 Tory MPs uh, and delay the rollout of universal credit? Uh, in fact, why don't you get your 12 Tory MPs to sit as Scottish Conservatives in Westminster and be answerable to you instead of being Conservative and Unionist MPs? Well, as a member of the lobby in the House of Commons, Torquil, I thought you would have known it's 13 Scottish Conservative MPs. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, <laughs> uh, however, I think if you'd listened to David Gock's speech this afternoon, you'd have seen that with the rollout of universal credit, the issue about it being six weeks has been recognised. He's moving it to advanced payments, which will mean it'll be a maximum of five days uh, for people, which uh, I think is a positive step forward. Are you using your group of 12 slash 13 Tory MPs <laughs> as a block? I mean, the, the, the block of DUP MPs <laughs> got a billion pounds out of Theresa May to make sure that they voted in line with what she wanted. What have you, what have you got? Well, uh, I, I think as you'll have heard in the Chancellor's speech, if you were watching it uh, in the, in the uh, auditorium earlier, he um, recognised and 
Uh, I think sounded as if he slightly bemoaned the amount of lobbying that he'd had from the 13 <laughs> Scottish Tory MPs. And, and, you know, I mean, Scottish Conservatives are Conservatives. We're part of the, the UK-wide Conservative family. However, I, I think the, the 13 uh, MPs know and understand that in terms of delivering for Scotland, that if they work together, they'll be able to deliver a lot more. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I, uh, I'm looking forward to hearing the budget in December. Excellent. Um, Ruth, I'd like to go back to what you said about the, the manifesto and intimating that the social care policy was a mistake. Um, as um, Matt said, you're kind of renowned for being straight talking, very upfront. Um, and I think that's a big part of why you're so popular. Um, so what does it say if someone as straight talking as you thinks you can't put something in a manifesto which is complicated and may affect a certain type of manifestos. And it, does that mean manifesto, what's the point of a manifesto if that's no, the case? No, 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 th I think you misunderstand the point I was making. What I said is you can't just put it in a manifesto. You can't uh, bring out a complicated policy three weeks before a vote if you haven't talked to the country about that policy first. So I think that, you know, if we'd started talking about social care in January or December, then, you know, as an issue, it would have been, you know, the debate would have happened, it would have been understood, we would have got beyond the top line, which was just the other lot shouting dementia tax at us, and we'd be able to pitch roll that for the country. I think what was difficult about that policy is that there, there wasn't the space and the oxygen for that debate to happen um, within the country about rebalancing, um, you know, uh, the, the way in which the state acts between older members of the, of, uh, the country and younger members of the country, looking at how we uh, react to an ageing population, looking at all of these other things. And I, I think that when it's a complicated policy, you know, you have to let the country have the debate. And I, and I think that's the point that I was making. Uh, well, I think we've nearly run out of uh, time, unfortunately. I just wanted to ask you, given that you're a former journalist, straight-talking politician, popular with the party members, uh, you can tell a joke, you like a stunt. Um, are you basically a female Boris Johnson? Um, <laughs> oh, I, I think we could put that to the popular vote in the room. Uh, I, um, well, I think, uh, I, I think it's fair to say I don't speak as much Greek as the Foreign Secretary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Well, on that note... <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for uh, all of you coming. 
I hope you enjoyed it. I think news may have been committed. Um, I was going to say make sure you take a mug, but you've all filled your bags with those, so they've all gone. <laughs> um, like I said, do shine up to my email, thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box, and uh, tweet pictures and all of that sort of stuff. But once again, my thanks to Ruth Davison. Thank you. Thank you for downloading. To discover more... This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Head to thetimes.co.uk.